president and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. We tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, an ETS sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. I should note I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Discussion today is not a recommendation for any trading strategies, nor do I have the offer of sale on investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. Lots to talk about this week. We had the June jobs report this morning. We've got a lot of activity in the markets, oil prices, Trump in Europe for the G20. Uh, we have a guest in the studio with us for the hour, Wes Gray, uh, the alpha architect. Uh, welcome to our studio, Wes. Welcome back. Thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate being here. We're going to have a, a nice conversation with Wes for the hour. Um, but before we get to that, uh, Professor, maybe we could get you to comment on the markets, the employment report here today. Yeah, this is a real good one. I mean, it's the one I like. I I like ones where actually the unemployment rate goes up, and but there's good job growth because that means that the labor force participation rate has to be going up, which it did, which means people are entering the labor force. That takes pressure off the labor market and um, uh, slows the urgency of the Federal Reserve to tighten credit. So this was, this was a really good report. I mean, we got 222,000 uh, upward revisions, 47,000 for the previous two months. That's, yeah, that's quite substantial. Uh, unemployment rate ticked up one-tenth of a percent, 4.4. Now, that's still two-tenths under what, they, what the Fed considers the natural rate of unemployment, which they keep on lowering somewhat like they keep on lowering what they think is the neutral Fed funds rate. Um, but uh, so they're, they're certainly uh, not thinking there's very much slack. But uh, again, uh, look at wages, up two-tenths, actually unrounded up one-and-a-half-tenths, year-over-year, two-and-a-half percent. Um, we did have an uptick in hours, uh, which is good. Um, um, the U6 did go up two tenths, but it really had fallen quite dramatically in the last two months, down to eight four. Uh, so this is a type of re- this, in my opinion, is uh, the Goldilocks report. The Goldilocks report is we have good job growth, but you don't tighten the labor markets and squeeze wages up above productivity growth, and that's what I, uh, that's what I think. You saw today, and I think that's partly why um, we're getting, um, a, you know, a fairly good reaction in the market with, you know, the Dow up, up 96. You know, markets did not have a good day yesterday. Actually, NASDAQ leading among, and it had the worst before. I'm still not sure the rotation away from tech that we've seen over the last week is over. Um, uh, that, that's hard to say. But nonetheless, uh, uh, that's what we're getting. Uh, yields are very little changed. Um, they, they did fluctuate a lot, but uh, the, the 10 year is uh, 238, up uh, one and a half basis points from where it was. The, the big news on yields really came from Europe. I mean, huge increases of 50 basis points over the last 
seven or eight trading sessions in, in the German Bund, even the British um, gilts, uh, and uh, several of the other European uh, sovereign bonds of, of uh, high quality. Uh, finally, the bond market there is saying, <laughs> you know, hey, the, the Europe is on its feet, and we're, we're not, we're not going to be in negative territory anymore, and all those long bonds moved out of negative territory. Uh, and I think that, that, you know, that little bit pressured our, our treasuries, obviously, since there is a, a global market in the bond, uh, traders and investors, uh, and uh, cases where I would think uh, uh, the 10-year might have been a little softer, so um, uh, uh, on yield side, anyways, saw uh, some strength because of the yield increase uh, that we saw in Europe. Yeah, it's interesting on the on the strong jobs number. You didn't see much change in bonds. They sort of the the yields yeah. were basically flat on the day, which yeah. it, which tells you that a lot of that global drivers. But any is is there anything in the bond market? Well, you're, you, the, the thing is, you got you got good news on the wage front that should lower yields. You got strong labor market growth that generally is strong real growth that raises the real part. Um, so you you got you got those conflicting things on the bond. I mean, at first it did actually go down to two, three basis points. I thought it would generally stay there, but uh, again, I mean, the German Bund again was up today, and uh, I, I, I yield, and, and, and again, they saw that uh, it now looks, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, with this number and those revisions, I mean, that, that, that's quite substantial, 47,000. When you overestimate, oftentimes when you miss on the current month, you get a kind of a payback on the previous two. These two reinforce in the same direction. So when you actually look at the last three months, what many people said was a slowdown down in job growth now is barely statistically visible. And uh, so I think the market says economic growth is good. Now, we're not going to get to the end of the month of the GDP. Most estimates are 2.8. But it is interesting that I see estimates now of 3.0 for the third quarter. Um, so, I mean, if we can get to the three handle and stick with that on the fourth quarter, um, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's fairly good GDP growth from a two zero to a two five. We're going to be two over the all in the first quarter because we had, had as we usually do a, a rather poor first quarter. Um, but, um, they see acceleration in the second quarter, I mean, excuse me, in the third, second half of the year. And as I said, early estimates are 3% GDP growth. So I, I think, you know, you're, you're seeing that built into it. And Jerry Gunlock's comments again about, you know, the, the grand bull market in bears, bear market uh, in, in bonds might be over, uh, you know, obviously adds uh, some, some um, selling to, uh, to the bond uh, uh, contracts. Let me uh, bring Wes into the conversation quickly here. Um, so Wes is uh, a PhD from the University of Chicago, where where you actually spent some time, and he also did Four his years. his undergrad here at the Wharton School. So welcome back to campus, Wes. Always good to have you back. You you did a, a blog on the U.S. equity premium. You called it the warning: the U.S. stock market is an anomaly. Uh, you sort of had some interesting quotes at the start from Buffett, who's talked about his long term strategies being ten percent in in cash and 90% in the S&P and, and then Bogle, who always said, just stay invested in the U.S. and not think about the foreign markets. Do you want to sort of rope in, you know, what you were looking at in that blog post and, and sort of tie it into some questions for the professor? 
Sure. So, um, yeah, the basic intent of that blog post is there's a lot of research, to include yours, Professor Siegel, that seems to suggest that when you look at a sample, <clears throat> which means to different countries or different time periods, you know, the U.S. equity premium or the spread between what U.S. stocks earn and bonds is really high. Um, so the question is, historically, is that something that was abnormal or is that something we can expect in the future? And actually, at the very end of that post, I actually quote, you, Professor Siegel, because I, I, I read yeah. your post. It was very nice, and, and I thought it was. I was just curious because you you were ahead of the curve on this concept. You know, twenty five years ago, like all this stuff, you probably already thought about it many times over. I was just curious for your updated thoughts on U.S. Yeah. equity premium well, going know, I forward. And, I, I, you know, my our long run that we get uh, over the two hundred years six seven, and I'm not real for mm-hmm. the U.S. The world, and it depends on whether you GDP weight. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways when you when you get the the world is is between five and five and a half. You're perfectly right. The world is less than the U.S. Although it's interesting, over the last 115 years, uh, there's two countries, South Africa and Australia, which, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, it, it surprises everyone that's had better dollar returns than the U.S. market. So we are not unambiguously number one. But the world is lower. But also, more importantly for investors today, I'm, I'm now telling investors uh, not to expect much more than a 5% real going forward. Uh, that's consistent with a 20 P.E. ratio. And if you uh, take 12-month centered earnings, that's about where we're at. Mm-hmm. We're 21-22 on last 12 months, but we're on centered earnings, which I think is the best, a, a good way to do it, or even 12 months forward, we're, we're about 20 in that ballpark. That's 120th is 5%, 5% real. So you're perfectly right. I don't think we deserve to – investors think, oh, I'm going to get you know near 7% real uh, or 10% nominal when there was 3% inflation, uh, you know, uh, going forward. I think, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't, I certainly don't, don't see that over, over the long run. Sure. Uh, w- one other question is actually, I uh, didn't really hit it on that piece. And you actually mentioned in your paper, and again, as you know, decades ago, you may not remember, but you did make a comment about how, and I don't know much about this research, you obviously did it, but we're bond real returns you you suggested might be better than expected in the future because they tended to be deflated uh at least historic i think you mentioned three to four uh going forward um wh- wh- what do you see there uh well obviously you know the the long run bond market compound real return is three and a half real and mm-hmm. we're you know miles away from that we know yeah. that uh and there's there's and 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 the fact is one of the reasons why I think the equity returns are going to be five instead of six seven is because of the bond yields. So the equity premium mm-hmm. has has actually looking forward is on the high side, slightly on the high side. Both returns have dropped, but the bond forward looking return has actually dropped. Now, as you know, the ten year. Uh, the ten. If we take a look at the ten-year real. Let me just tuck and it's uh, the ten-year real. Oh boy, it's up. I haven't seen it this high in a long time. Sixty-two basis points. As you know, this actually turned negative mm-hmm. in the U.S. for uh, for a, a period of time. Uh, so if if you say five percent real for stocks, 
you're at 4.4 equity premium. In the historical data, it's, you know, closer to three to three and a half. And that's what I say. So we're at slightly on the high side. Treasuries are gaining, uh, have gained a premium because uh, they've, they're considered by many investors as a counter-cyclical asset in crises. Uh, you know, the rush to treasuries, as we all hear, um, happens when some global event shakes the market and people buy it as an insurance policy and therefore accept a lower yield, negative beta. Um, and by the way, that is interesting because in the 70s, and before you were born probably, yeah. or around where you were born, mm-hmm. um, but I was teaching, I mean, uh, bond, treasury bonds were positive beta assets. They moved with the stock market, but that's because inflation was so high, uh, and everyone had to find a you know premium, you know the premium on the bonds. Uh, but very different now. Under a low inflation world, we have a, a, a negative beta on treasury bonds, and a negative beta asset supposed to give you a lower return, and indeed it does give you that lower return. Very good, Professor. It's always good talking to you. Um, looking forward to next week. We just to tease out the show for next week. We have two professors focused on the economy, Joel Moker and Bob Gordon. Any quick comments uh, to tease out next oh, week? Oh, yeah, show? this is exciting. I mean, but, you know, um, uh, Bob Gordon, first of all, I knew him. He was, he was, I think, a year ahead of me at MIT when I got my Ph.D., um, um, written a wonderful book, The Rise and Fall of U.S. Growth. Uh, it's a long book. But it moved my needle in my head, and I'm a stubborn person, so to move my needle is, <laughs> is not easy to do. Uh, he, he thinks that the, the days of great productivity growth that we experience in the 40s, 50s are, are, basically, are basically over. Joe Moker, also at Northwestern, um, is the optimist and thinks that technology is, just, is, is beginning to open things up. So we have really competing ideologies uh, on, on ultimately the most single most important issue to the average American family, and, and that is what is going to be their standard of living, which, of course, is what productivity is all about. Great. Hey, uh, Professor Siegel, just before you go, I had one question, just because sure. you, you're kind of the original uh, idea guy on this, but uh, the concept of long-term trend falling, it's, as you probably know, like recently, trend falling has just been getting killed and bashed on and I, I know you're kind of lukewarm on the concept but have you do you have any revised expectations or thoughts on you know just generic 200 day moving average type yeah, rules well, you know i have a chapter on that you may mm-hmm. remember in stocks for long run yep where uh, you know i test on the dow jones going all the way back to the beginning of the uh you know, the last century mm-hmm. uh if you got out when the dow crossed and then got back in um, and by the way, as I revised the first edition of Stocks Lowering came on 94, there was actually an advantage then, but a lot of that advantage was gained in the 2932. Mm-hmm. Um, as time has gone on, that advantage has diminished dramatically. Um, and um, part of that is transactions costs. Um, and, and you can't go, you know, you can't ever do it right at, you have to, you have, you have to pick a band. Because otherwise, if if the if if the market is right, if you you just say wherever it is, you might be buying and selling fifty times in one day, and that that's not reasonable. So you need. I, I had a one percent band, I believe, on, on it, and um, uh, the transactions costs in some years on that band uh, really ate it up. 
So um, I know momentum, you know, when I first wrote it, wrote Sox for Momentum, momentum was not mentioned hardly at all as a factor. It is today on individual stocks. And, of course, a lot of people then you'd say that market itself has momentum. But we all have to realize when everyone follows any technical uh, signal, um, it, it has to fall apart um, because everyone can't make money from it. Um, and uh, so when it becomes what we call crowded trade, you can uh, expect a lot of uh, risk and uh, bad outcomes. Thanks, Professor. We'll, we'll talk to you next week. Yes, thank you very much. So, so, so uh, just to, to give give a reset to our guests, we're talking with Wesley Gray, who's the uh, the CEO of Alpha Architects. Uh, you have uh, an, an ETF provider as well. Um, you guys do a lot of research on this value momentum philosophy. Um, you know, what maybe sort of react to what you just heard there on the first part. I mean, sort of in, in what the professor was saying in terms of looking at technical signals, and if everybody's following certain things. Will they go away? I know that's one of the things we talk a little bit about in terms of the value and momentum style is will these factors get arbitraged away? Do you worry about that? Is somebody focused on value, somebody focused on momentum, things that have been talked about in the research for sure. 20, 30 years? <clears throat> yeah, so basically the way we kind of think about it is is most of these ideas that continue to work are usually open secrets. And so a natural question is, well, how the heck can an open secret continue to work out of sample, basically. And then when you kind of think about it, there's, there's really two reasons why things should work in equilibrium. One, there's usually some extra risk. So, and I think that's a valid argument. So value, buying cheap stuff everyone hates, well, that probably works because there's extra risk associated with it. <clears throat> but the real question is, well, why is that premium, at least historically, so much bigger than maybe what could be justified by risk, and that's the mispricing component. And so with the mispricing component, that's where you really worry, is this been arbitraged away? But in order to understand mispricing, you gotta understand, well, how does mispricing get arbitraged away? It requires massive amounts of capital that's permanently deployed into this risk into this risk premium that they'll try to shrink it down over time. And so what a lot of times what we look for with like value momentum trades is the capital that's going in to try to exploit that edge. Is it permanent capital or is it performance chasing capital? And to the extent that capital is performance chasing, it's just going after the premium because it's done well or done poorly. But if it gets too painful to get out, arguably they may end up contributing more to these premiums. So, and I've never seen a lot of evidence, at least recently, that all of a sudden we have, you know, armies of Warren Buffetts who are like, I love the value trade. I love the momentum trade. And I can take 10 years of underperformance without a problem. I'm in this for 50 years. You know, to the extent I started hearing a lot more of that kind of chatter, you know, I would start worrying about the long-term efficacy of a lot of these kind of open secrets, but I, I don't see that. Instead, I see a lot of ETF strategies, tactical allocation, factor timing, and a lot of things are in, antithetical to long-term buy and hold permanent capital. So, you know, you always want to worry about crowded trades, but I, I'm, I'm still confident that human nature and short-term performance chasing will dominate capital markets, which means premiums like value and momentum, trend falling. I think you can see those lasting for a long, long time. And so we're, we're both focused on the ETF industry. I mean, we, there's been huge flows towards passive investing generally. And so talk a little bit about how you think about the state of the ETF, the, the passive flow, you could say, mm -hmm. and then how you look to differentiate you know, what you're doing at Alpha Architects. 
Sure. So, so just up front, uh, as we discussed before at lunch, here, it's, it's always important to understand what we mean by passive and active, and uh, because people interpret the things differently. But for this discussion, active means anything that's not the valuated or market cap weighted index of all risk assets yeah. in the world. Uh, passive would just be like the Vanguard fund that owns everything in the market cap yep. uh, weight. And then, you know, so we are a, a self indexer in a sense that we're index and often classified as passive, but our portfolio constructed is actually very active in the sense that we hold 40 stock portfolios equal weighted with no sector constraints. Basically, we don't really care about you couldn't look more different than the market. Yeah, we, we couldn't look more different, and yet we're still passive labeled by some. Yeah. But just to be clear, we're, we're super active. So all, all we're doing that is you know arguably different, and I'm not going to say it's different, it's just unique, it's just a different product set, is we're just saying, hey, there's a lot of opportunities to buy things that look like an index. There's a lot of opportunities to buy things that that are marketed as being active but basically are the index. There's very few opportunities to buy pure, high-octane, totally differentiated active products. And that's what we're trying to do. So it's a very niche, like, segmented product set. And we're not trying to take over the world here. We're just doing concentrated value and momentum. And it's definitely not for everybody. Sure. So when you think about the concentration, obviously, um, when it works, it's going to really work. When it doesn't work, it's, it could be very painful. I mean, how yeah. have you thought about... I mean, one of the things of being concentrated value is... Mm -hmm is you can get big sector bets, right? Yep. So how have you thought about the returns that come from the sector allocation versus the returns that come from stock selection using those signals? Sure. So so we've done a lot of research on this. And the, the bottom line is, is, again, going back to the discussion of open secrets and why they work, they're part risk and they're part mispricing. And with value in particular, like a lot, we, we believe and we think the evidence supports this is that a lot of the value premium is associated and correlated with the sector. So, for example, if you if you sector allocate like a value strategy, well, in '99 you're going to be forced to own some tech stocks that are quote unquote cheap at 50 times PE, but they're that's not the value premium, right? So, so we're of the opinion that, and I know I totally understand people that go for like an AQR firm that goes for the pure play sector neutralized, you know, the pure kind of value premium, and, and that's fine. We think it's really difficult to do after taxes, after fees, after brain damage to deliver that, you know, efficiently. We're, we're much more of, of the mindset like, listen, we're going to build the most insanely active pure play, high octane value bet you can access that's transparent, fairly easy to understand, and try to do it affordably. And what that means is it's going to have tons of differentiation from the market. We're going to have crazy sector bets. Um, and, and clearly, there's additional risks there. Um, but we also think by taking that risk, there's also an associated additional mispricing component of that too, because sectors tend to get mispriced simultaneously as well. And it just is what it is. And, and obviously, you know, you don't want to put all your money in <laughs> something we do, because you will be at times, you know, 50% in, in some broad sector, potentially. So, so like today, as we talk about the value bucket, we sort of, the, everybody, the professor alluded to in the top part of the show, mm -hmm. is, is, is tech coming off, is the Amazon effect sure. uh, coming off, but at the opposite side of this sort of high growth Amazon effect, you have sort of the, the retailers, which yeah. show up in your, your, your quantitative value strategy. Exactly. So, so the real value trade today is basically the Amazon 
killer path. Like any, anything where Amazon can kill, those are all the cheap, you know, hated securities. And then, so the natural instinct is, well, why would you want to buy anything that competes against Amazon? And I, I would ask that question all the time too, because I don't buy anything except on Amazon. But, but value investing is really about expectation front running. So to the extent that something has the priced expectation that Amazon's going to kill them, but after the fact in the future, Amazon kills them, but maybe not as bad as was priced in, you can still make money. So, and, and we think that deep value, hardcore contrarian is by nature, you always have to own the worst stories, the most pain, the most hated situations that on paper look like they're terrible and they probably are terrible, but they just have to do a little bit better than what the price is expected in. And, and like the history of value, we think, or we hope, we don't know, it's not a guarantee, but we think the, the Amazon is going to kill the world bet will end up mean reverting at some point too. We're talking with Leslie Gray, the CEO of Alpha Architect, asset management firm based here in the Philly suburbs. So it's great to have you down here in the studio with us. Um, Definitely. Talking value premium, momentum. Um, wh how, what are the, some of the traps as you think about value as it's done historically? There was the original, and you did your PhD at Chicago with Fama, yeah. who's done some of the original Fama French three-factor models, and he focuses sure. a lot on price to book. Um, what do you think about the way people have traditionally done value, both from that factor and then how they've constructed their... Mm -hmm their tilts there, and then how you think about the, the more appropriate way of doing value. Sure. So, you know, you know book the market is kind of the, the Fama French linchpin. It's used in, you know, many, many indices. And we've, we've actually written papers, Jack and I, uh, on like, it was called the horse race of value factors. I don't even remember the title, but literally what we did is we say, hey, there's all these different ways you can capture value. You could use price to earnings, price to book. You could use enterprise multiples. You could use gross profits, the like everything. We just said, let's just test them all, run them in a horse race and look at how they perform, right? And bottom line is all of these factors or these these pro these signals capture some element of the, va the value premium. So if you buy cheap stuff, it's on average over long periods of time going to beat expensive stuff. And it doesn't matter which one you choose. So if someone were to come at me and say, hey, I'm a book to market diehard, I'd be like, great. It's But now, now we can get into the nuance and going back to what drives factor premiums. Well, it's usually part risk and part mispricing. I would argue that book to market, specifically as a value factor, is dominated at this point by probably the risk component of it. Um, I imagine most of the mispricing piece of it has probably been arbitrage away at the margin. And why is that? Well, there's a firm called DFA that has $500 billion of literally permanent capital. Like the people that invest in those funds never sell. And going back to our early discussion, how do you arbitrage away a premium? You deploy tons of capital that's insanely disciplined and will hold that trade for 20 years. And so I think at the margin, like a firm like DFA is, is almost arbitraged away any of the, the mispricing component of book to market specifically. Um, so basically any measure that is not book to market, but still goes after the value premium that hasn't been tackled by a multiple hundred billion dollar firm, I think out of sample will give you a little better chance of you know, maybe capturing the value premium more efficiently. And, and, you know, we're enterprise multiple fans, but 
there's probably other versions as well. One of the interesting things, if I when I when I look at where is your quantitative value approach focused, mm-hmm. um, and then I look at something like this indexes that focus on price to book. Yeah, you're going to get a lot of financials in a price to book index. Yep. you have zero financials in the you know the alpha architects yeah. quantitative value. So talk about what things you look at differently that leads you to be like the exact opposite of where the price to book indexes get you. Sure. So it, it, it really depends. Right now is a unique time in, in history where where it seems like they're vastly different. Like typically, like if you look at like price to book it or price to book deciles or terciles, and you look at the overlap between like you know cheap like say operating income to enterprise value enterprise multiples, which is what we use. There's tends to be some overlap. Right now there there seems to be no overlap. And one of the things there one of the reasons it's a little bit of a misnomer with, with our in indices specifically is because we do so much distress uh, screens on it. We actually just eliminate financials at the outset because hmm. which is which is kind of interesting because distress screens and all the algorithms that predict you know bankruptcies basically financials always show up which was a good prediction because that's what happened in in 2008. Um, but e- even if we were to put them in there on on enterprise multiple basis, you, you still wouldn't see that overlap. And this is just a weird time. Um, and I don't, you know, in other historical periods, they have more overlap. Right now, they don't. And, you know, we don't know if that signals anything. It doesn't seem to. I think it's just a random element of the marketplace right now. And, um, yeah, different valuation metrics, are they're just not a commodity. Um, yeah, I mean, it's sort of interesting if you think about what, the way people have done a lot of value investing with the the, the popular indexes, the mm-hmm. firms like DFA. You know, you can sort of compete very nicely, complementing them with you know very little overlap in that s- standpoint yeah. of uh, still just focus on other value value metrics for sure. And and what's interesting is, is when you read the index methodologies on a lot of like the hugest value funds, book to market is typically thirty to fifty percent of that signal. So it dominates the whole. Mm-hmm marketplace and yet what's what's ironic is when you actually read the research you know it's not the most effective valuation metric like you know shareholder yield enterprise multiples even dividend type elements you know they're they're arguably more effective so you would think that the index methodologies would follow what the research actually states but for whatever reason people got anchored maybe via status quo bias or the social proof from Fama and French that book to market was kind of the anchor but you know, you would think people would use you know more effective and, and less used valuation metrics to capture the value premium. And we've talked a lot about value. Maybe um, before we're going to have Charlie Tian on the second part of the show coming up talking about his book on guru investing. It's going to talk a little bit overlapping on value and quality. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how momentum fits into the, the picture and how you how you think they complement each other and 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 how you sort of try to blend them together. Sure. So. One of the things, and and so we wrote this book, Quantitative Value, which was all about how do you systematically capture the value premium, which is all about the best way to do value. And and I came from that religion, like because I, I was a diehard Ben Graham, Warren Buffett. If you mention technicals, you're you're out of the religion, and, and I, that was that was my world. But then you know, then you go to the University of Chicago, they teach you about researching, you know, evidence starting to view the world a little bit differently than than just being from like a religious zealot that values the only way. And I, and I slowly over time, you know, momentum is just one of those things where it's a total different religion. But if you're an evidence-based investor, it's arguably more compelling even than the value premium. And what's what's what we think is so great about them is because they're kind of followed by two religious camps. You're either a value person that thinks 
technical people are crazy or you're a technical momentum person that thinks fact people are totally insane. You, you get massive diversification benefits when you can get past the religious component of it and just say, hey, why don't we pull these risks together? Because they're kind of like yin and yang. And and that's that's basically what high level what what we do. We say, hey, value's great idea. Momentum's a great idea. They're even better when you put them together. And you know, Asus and, and his buddies they here have that paper value momentum everywhere yep. where they where they talk about like this this is ubiquitous effect. Like value kind of exists in all asset classes, momentum exists in all asset classes, which is everyone can talk about and argue and there's you know reasons why that may be. But the what's a puzzle to this day is why can you pull them together and get an even better benefit because they're so complementary. And yeah, so, so our, our process is just take what we think is the best way to do value, take the best way to do momentum, and just, you know, at the simple way, just 50-50 them and hold them for a long time and deal with inevitable pain. But there's also a hundred different ways someone else could cut it. Any any quick commentary on how the industry has done momentum and how you think you know momentum from the you know the MSCI index family is starting to lead the markets again this year? Part of that's the the Amazon effect and the and the yeah. tech guys moving up. But any commentary on how you would say your momentum index has been doing compared to that? Sure. So so in general, just stepping back when when you look at if you're trying to exploit what we like the academic momentum factor, th- there's two empirical points that are very clear. One, it has to have high turnover. You can't rebalance a momentum fund every six months and expect to capture the momentum premium because historically it doesn't really exist, especially after cost. So you have to have high frequency turnover, at least quarterly. Then then the second thing you need to do is you have to have concentration. So if you have like a thousand securities and you just look at like say the top 500, the, the difference between the top 500 momentum securities and the top 50 momentum securities is night and day. In other words, to make a long story short, the momentum premium is found in concentrated high turnover portfolios. That is the momentum factor. And there's not many times when you read index methodologies like on MSCI type products, they're not built per se to capture the momentum factor. They're built for scalably maybe capturing a small tilt of the momentum factor, i.e. if you had to build a fund that had high turnover and was super concentrated, you by design can't jam billions upon billions of dollars into it. Where And that's fine. You either take, I'm going to get do it right and keep it low capacity, or I'm going to dilute it way out and make it more and more like the market and get huge scalability. And so if you look at, say, the MSCI momentum indices and the, the affiliated products, and you look at our indices, which are basically the antithesis of, of their version of it, they're going to have dramatically different performance. However, when you compare our indice compared to the MSCI indice, and you go to Ken French's website, and you look at the 212 momentum factor, we're going to have a much higher mm-hmm. correlation to that, because that's what we're going after, the actual academically documented Factor. Very good. We're going to continue the conversation with Wes Gray on the second part of the program. We're going to also have Charlie Tian uh, on the program. He's the author of a book, and, and uh, the website GuruFocus.com is, is one of his, uh, his main focal points. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. We'll be back after a short break. In the studio, I have Wesley Gray. He's the CEO of Alpha Architect. We're talking to this 
segment of the show with Charlie Chan of GuruFocus.com, who has a book, uh, Guru Investing, uh, Invest Like a Guru. Um, what I didn't know before the show is that on the back cover of the book, Wesley actually reviewed the book. Um, so it's nice to have some overlap there. Charlie, welcome to our program today. Thank you for having me. Uh, so it was interesting background you had sort of going into from, from being a, a physics PhD and getting recruited out to sort of the fiber optics boom in the 90s, late 90s. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about your story and then how you got to start focusing on sort of what, what lessons it taught you to, for, for your investing long run. Yeah, I wrote it in the introduction of my book. I was a physicist working in the fiber optics industry in the late 1990s. Just like lots of uh, engineers and technologists at that time, I was buying fiber optics stocks, dot-com stocks, and I lost uh, lots of money on that. From that, I started to learn, start to read, and read Peter Lynch, read Warren Buffett. I read uh, all the shareholder letters of Warren Buffett many times. Uh, through those reading, it changed the way of my thinking and changed my life, actually. So I started GuruFocus.com in 2004. I thought that uh, because there are more than 10,000 stocks in the U.S. market alone, if I want to pick a stock, why do I want to start from scratch? Why don't I look at the portfolios of the, some of the best investors and go from there? The chance of making mistakes will be much smaller. So it's like standing on the shoulders of the giants. So that's why I started Guru Focus in 2004 to share what I found from the portfolios of the best investors, to share uh, what I learned from their writings, and things went very well from there. So Guru Focus, talk a little bit about what services that you guys are providing there. Is that a, you're, you're providing screens to try to help people understand where these, you know, the, the, the companies that meet your sort of best criteria are? Guru Focus is not a research platform. It's uh, it's for value investors. We provide, for instance, for every company, we provide 30 years of financial data, the historical financial data. We provide the portfolios of all the institutional investors in the uh, in the U.S. For instance, they're they're through their filings, and we provide a screen, a very powerful screener, which you can screen from more than. 200 filters, and you can build your own customized filters and find the stocks you want based on quality, based on the profitability, their financial strengths, their balance sheets parameters, their income state parameters, everything you can think of. And from this screener, you can find the stocks you want, then you can research them on Guru Focus 2. We provide the historical financial data and valuation data. We provide a very powerful interactive charting tool, which we, uh, which you can study all the historical valuations, the historical dividend yield, for instance, and you can also compare with their their competitors on different uh, parameters such as profitability, return on invested capital, their profit margins, almost everything. Uh, on the quality side of the and quality and the valuation side of the companies. 
So Wes, he's obviously talking about similar overlaps of, of, of approach that both you and I focus on, value, quality stocks. He talks about buying good companies. How do you think you know people listening and in, investors should think about a service where you're getting stock screeners, you can do some of your individual work compared to you know buying these baskets or different strategies? I mean, how would you you would think about that for people listening in? Sure. I mean, I have a strong opinion on this, and it's tailored towards my use case, where you know, I used to be a hardcore stock picker. I thought quant was actually insane. And you know, after getting my face ripped off and eating tons of humble pie, I just had to go quant because I don't have that capability to use my monkey brain that well. Um, so, so I'm a big fan of just doing it systematically, and I think the evidence supports that in general. But that said, there's you know, obviously, maybe there are people out there that can do the quantum mental. And, and I think it sounds like Charlie's tools are, are meant to help facilitate those folks be successful. I mean, it sort of like sounds similar to, in a way, the motif basket, although they're doing some thematic work that maybe they not focus on the valuation side the same way. How do you think, Charlie, you would suggest people use your service? Are people doing that for their own research and then buying stocks individually? Does Guru Focus actually let people execute there? We, we don't uh, provide a broker platform. People basically just research stocks on our site. But uh, the, the tool we have is uh, toward the quality and the long-term investing and valuation. So we, we don't provide a lot um, much about uh, like uh, what Wise was talking about, momentum or those. But we, we are mainly for the quality and valuation. So we provide tools for uh, for investors to fill, uh, filter out the companies that provide uh, long-term profitability and high return on invested capital and uh, also growth. And then you can look at the the historical valuation to look to see where they are in terms of valuation currently compared with the historical, and also you can we have a very powerful uh, value fair value calculator. You can get an uh, idea, get some idea of how much the company the stock is worth, and then you get uh, compare with the price and get a margin of safety. You can uh, think of. Yeah. Hey, Charlie. This is uh, Wes here. Had a question for you. You're obviously got more quant cred than probably everyone in the world combined. So I'm, I'm interested in your approach to value. Are you are you a proponent of doing systematic holding the baskets? Or are you much more proponent of using the quant technology to screen and then add value with human intuition? I'm just curious what your perspective is on that. Uh, as I said, as I actually I wrote in the book, I focus a lot on the quality of companies. I think that it's very hard to find a good company. It's very hard for companies that satisfy the quality you want. So once you find one, you hold for long term, very long term. You hold it forever. So you don't want to you don't want to switch it in and out because it's so hard to find a good company that satisfies the needs. So once I find one, it will be a few, maybe three, four, five, and I will hold them for a very long t- time. So it's, it does have human uh, human uh, factor inside because I need to understand the companies. I need to understand the business. I do filter out. I, I start a screening process with the parameters. Once I find them, I try to understand the business to see what the company did. Uh, they generate high returns, for instance, in the past. 
to see if it, they can continue the same way in the future. So in this way, you need to have very good understanding of business. And so it does have a human factor inside. One of the interesting tables, Charlie, I thought in your book, you had a, a, a table of years of profitability, uh, and he sort of showed 10, you know, if you, if you, depending on how many years of profitability you had, if you had 10 consistent years of profitability, you know, the average returns were something like 11%. Uh, once you dropped to like only nine years of the last 10 years of profitability, the returns dropped down to the, the sevens, and then they just continued to drop. Right, right. Drop right. from there. I mean, how, is, that, um, is that something you think about? I mean, Wes, how do you think about the consistent or 10 years of profitability as, as a factor as, as you look at the, whether or not companies are, are quality companies? The reason is because you, you, want to, you want a company make money in good years and bad years. Most of the times when the company loses money, it's during the bad times, the economic recessions. So you want to make sure that they can still make money in, 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 even in recessions. So for this kind of company, they will have less difficulties to go through the recessions, and you will have much fewer, much less risk to holding them over long term. And uh, for companies that did well in the past, it's more like uh, more likely for them to do well, to do better in the future. So we understand why the company could do well in the past, and then we try to uh, try to see how they will do in the future. And in this in this kind of thinking, the business quality, the the tech business are very important. It is interesting when you look at just how many companies, and you looked at say thirty six hundred companies. Only a thousand of the thirty six hundred actually have that ten year profitability. When you extend it beyond the S and P five hundred, Wes, I I jumped in there before you got a chance. To no, I, I was just going to say um, what's actually interesting here, Charlie. I'd be curious to get your opinion on it. Is um, at least from the the research done and what the evidence seems to suggest is that it, it kind of makes intuitive sense. But you you really want to focus on cheapness, and then quality is kind of a marginal factor that helps you differentiate amongst the cheapest things out there. I don't I don't know of a lot of empirical evidence that suggests that focus on quality is like a core factor. It, you know, and then with cheapness, it, it tends to just make the portfolio look more like the market and perform more like the market. And I think the intuition makes sense too because quality everybody wants to buy quality like procter and gamble i think a lot of that gets priced in so we're of the opinion both from a theoretical and empirical standpoint that it, you, quality is kind of like a secondary factor after cheapness and i think warren buffett doesn't say that but when you look at his portfolio that's mechanically what he actually does too he buys cheap and then it has a quality characteristic um, even though he always says, like, I'm a quality guy I'm primary. buying good companies, yeah, yeah. wonderful companies at a fair price, this return on invested capital, yeah. return on equity. Exactly. But the AQR paper shows pretty clearly he's a huge cheap stock buyer, and those cheap stocks happen to have low vol and quality characteristics. He's not a huge quality buyer that happens to have a little bit of cheapness on it. Um, but, but, but his commentary is different than what he mechanically actually does. Let me just reintroduce our guests real quick. We're talking with, with Charlie Tian of GuruFocus.com, Wesley Gray of Alpha Architects. Uh, sorry, sorry, Charlie, did, did you, uh, maybe any comments on how you think Buffett's, anything you see from Buffett's return on equity focus there? I think in the early years, Buffett did, did buy uh, cheap stocks, but uh, in, I, I think after the 1980s, and he's much more focused on quality, not only the stocks, but the companies he bought, like 100%. 
for those companies he doesn't he doesn't sell them he keeps them he has to keep them and he then he never sells them so in this way of thinking you want to buy a company and hold forever quality is much more important over long term that's my thinking and uh, my study i know lots of research articles did show that cheapness is important but they if you look at the the way they do there are lots of lots of factors to be adjusted inside too and uh, my study does show that uh, quality is important is important especially if i think of a company if i buy a company i really think of holding forever and in this way quality is the number one thing well, so Charlie's firm, GuruFocus.com, is focused on creating some screeners that let you look at individual stocks and trying to evaluate the individual stocks and all these different quality or quality valuation metrics. You've been building tools for advisors who also to look at sort of funds. Maybe talk about how you, you know, services you're trying to provide at Alpha Architects on how to evaluate funds, how to utilize them, and sort of looking at the, the sort of, you know, characteristics of ETFs. Sure. Um, yes. So one of the things that that you know, or you, you and I both know, and being in the financial service business, is that you know it's ninety nine percent marketing, one percent actual substance, and and the reason it's like that is it's really hard for consumers to actually understand what the heck's going on because finance is really complex and you need a PhD or a lot of experience to understand it. And so what what we try to do is we try to build tools that make the decision. A little bit simpler and and we have a new tool called visual active share where what you can do is is you can sort all the securities on a portfolio based on whatever characteristic you want so like let's say you have a, a high dividend yield fund or, or that's what this fund is marketed as well it should be the case that when we actually look at all the securities <clears throat> excuse me owned by this fund that when you sort them on dividend you, you should see like a pretty heavy characteristic tell with a lot of kind of mass of securities in the high dividend yielding stocks. And what happens is, and what's kind of interesting is when you look at a lot of funds, their name will be say dividend yield fund, but you can type in 10 dividend yielding funds and then sort them on the dividend yield characteristic or quality or what have you. And they'll have dramatically different actual portfolio characteristics. So this is really a tool that just allows consumers to have more transparency on looking beyond just what the label of the fund is so they can actually see at the at the stock by stock level what they're actually buying in this fund um it's it's really it's all it is just a transparency tool very good charlie any any thoughts on on different features of gurufocus.com you want to bring bring to people's attention here we actually recently add, added a feature called economic indicators for instance, uh, you can get uh, the, uh, you can get the historical value for all the uh, parameters like oil prices and car sales and GDP. In this way, when you research a stock, for instance, ExxonMobil, you want to research the earnings of ExxonMobil, and you can compare the earnings the, the earnings of ExxonMobil with the oil prices, historical. So you draw the two charts together, historical earnings of ExxonMobil and the historical oil prices. You can find very strong correlations between those two. And that's a tool actually we provide just just developed in our interactive charts. And it gives you a much better understanding of where the earnings of oil companies are compared with the oil prices. And also, also airline companies, their earnings, how they are 
correlated with oil prices, things like that. And I think it's a very powerful tool. And also, we provide a backtesting tool, too. And you can screen based on the parameters you want, the, the factors you want. Then you can look at, you can backtest it. You can look at uh, the past performance of this strategy, and you can select uh, different uh, frequency of rebalancing, and you can see the performance of the strategies. And it's, bad, it's, it's uh, survival bias free. And we, we, we do include all the companies that have been delisted in the past. And we also developed a, a feature called the manual of stocks. It's, uh, it, the idea is from the old Moody's manual that Warren Buffett used when he was young. And for every company, we develop one page of um, information which contains all the key factors like current valuation, historical valuation, and uh, the key financial factors. Then for every company, you have one page. So we have more than 60,000 pages. We cover more than 60,000 companies worldwide. In principle, you can download all of them and flip through them. In this way, you can you can find the companies that may be, uh, may be over, overlooked by just, just simply, uh, simple, simply screening the companies. Very and, good. Uh, yeah. So, so Wes, we're down in our final countdown here. Uh, time flies by here when you're having fun. Um, any closing thoughts on what you're focused on and sort of closing thoughts that we didn't cover? we got about 30 seconds. Uh, sure. My closing thoughts are spend less time backtesting strategies in general and just try to understand what's your own. And, and in general, the world is all about no pain, no gain. So I think for value, momentum, trend, or whatever, the, the harsh reality is if if you're not prepared for massive relative unperformance and just looking like a total idiot for potentially multiple years, you shouldn't invest in any of these sort of strategies. And, you know, hiring Vanguard, who's in our backyard here, is probably a, a better approach. Yeah. No pain, no gain. <laughs> stick, with the, uh, stick with the beta. But if you want the pain, go with the factors. There you we- go. Wesley Gray. Alpha Architect, Charlie Chan of GuruFocus.com. Next week, we have Robert Gordon, Joel Moker, Professor Siegel on The Economy. Uh, You've been listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 111. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.